focus on conversion copy because conversion copy uses data and that data is great. It's really important, gives you the right direction. But what happens between those lines is just as important. No CEO in the world is going to admit that hiring a vendor is part of an ego play. No one is going to admit that, but it's what they need, even if they can't even actually articulate that themselves. So it's about appealing to what's between the lines. In anthropology, when you're conducting interviews, the transcripts have to be verbatim. Every pause, every stutter, every stammer, you have to pay special attention to those because there's a point, there's something that happens. So if someone is communicating in a nervous way versus if they're communicating in a relaxed way versus if there's pauses for emotion, it's like the dramatic pause and there's a pause in a transcript for, and you know that there's an intense emotion filled moment. What was happening in that moment? There was something going on that you can't just skip over it and say, well, it's, you know, it's white space. There's meaning in that white space and we have to get at what that meaning is. And that meaning is often the emotions that are so left out. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of Everyone Hates Marketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you will learn how to use conversion messaging, which is a mix of conversion copywriting and strategic messaging, to sell more stuff. We'll talk specifically about archetypes, voice, and tone as part of your brand. Um, my guest today has 12 plus years experience in sales, marketing, copywriting, uh, she worked with multiple startups, tech companies, uh, DTC brand, using conversion copy as her weapon. She's certified in conversion-focused uh, landing page and emails by copy hackers. Uh, Jana Wiebe has been a, a guest on the podcast before. She's been presenting about all of those stuff on many, many conferences and web events. So very happy to have you, uh, Hayden Bidani. Uh, welcome aboard. That's all right. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's a pleasure to join you. So is it true that good copy can fix any conversion issues? I used to believe that when I was first starting out in copywriting seven years ago, I used to think that copy could was like this magic band-aid, like you could put it on and it can fix so many things. But especially over the last, since the pandemic, and especially over the last two years, it's just become even more clear that a lot of companies are just simply struggling to even say the right thing in the first place. Like when you, when you approach copy from a conversion perspective, there's lots of things you can do to improve it and optimize it and to make it sound better and to make it sound appealing and but it turns into direct response, but a little bit more like sophisticated direct response. So it, it starts turning into more direct response copy where it's just focused on getting the conversion, actually missing out on a lot of reach of deeper elements or even missing out on saying actually the right thing is actually going to inspire people to convert or even stick in people's minds, even if they're not in a position to convert right now. And the other thing is that with copywriting lately, it's become, it's been optimized to the point where all kind of brand meaning or awareness has been totally stripped from it. So you see so many companies now that have great conversion-focused copy on their website, but they all say the same thing, grow your revenue, improve your business, win more customers. You know, it's all the same messages. It doesn't matter if it's a B2B SaaS or a B2C SaaS, or a bit. like it's all the same messaging, but it's all conversion-focused. So it just keeps coming back in a cycle on top of itself. So I used to think that copy could solve everything, but a lot of the time it's those underlying messages. They're not saying the right thing in the first place or they don't have a unique spin or what needs to be said. So what changed your mind? It was, well, I was, well, I was starting to work with many companies and each company had a different offer. They had a different product. I was working once with a cybersecurity company or versus working with a B2C SaaS video platform. And 
when we were looking at it from when we were looking at the messaging from a conversion copy perspective, because they were struggling with conversion, they were struggling to acquire new customers, to convert new customers, they were struggling with the traffic on their site. It wasn't, you know, their site wasn't converting. But by simply put, that conversion copy was like a band aid. I was looking at it, it's like, but you can say grow your business, you can say grow your business. For both audiences, that statement is true. It's not that it's a not true statement, but you need to have, you know, it's not enough to put that statement plus the product's functionality. They were still missing that element of the element of brand, that real deep, rich element, that emotional connection that goes just beyond the words. And conversion copy in itself does inspire emotional connections. I'm not going to say that it doesn't, just like direct response copy inspires emotional connections. But when you add a layer of brand into it, you add that deeper level of messaging into it, it solves a lot of problems across the full funnel. So like across the entire customer's journey. So not just in this moment when they're on the website, but actually sets up half of them over the, the course of their entire journey. Uh, what's the difference between conversion copywriting and direct response copywriting in your eyes? So they're very similar. So but a lot of direct response copies seems to sometimes push too hard on certain buttons. So a lot of the traditional style direct response, you'll see like the old long form sales letters or the advertorials and things where they really go very hard and deep on pressing specific pains and agitating those pains. And modern markets don't work like that anymore. You can't be a gym these days and advertise loose weight because you'll get a whole backlash of people saying you should be promoting body positivity, you know, and acceptance and not be promoting, you know, not be advertising as a way to lose weight. So you can't really press on pain so much anymore. Conversion copy gives you a lot of tools and how to speak to someone and to help show that you solve their problems without necessarily agitating those pains or problems like direct response copy does a lot of the time. Yeah, so so direct response, the cliche, the caricature would be like click funnels and all of those, you know, people who gravitate around it, which is exactly as you said, they agitate the pain to the point of making you feel guilty for not taking action. And it's it's a lot of for for a lot of the audiences that I would know and you probably would focus on as well, they are just way too savvy now to even fall for any of those. You mentioned the B word before. You mentioned brand, right? And this is what we're going to talk about today. You did a very good job at kind of putting the setting the context already, which is the fact that yes, you can have good copy, good conversion copy, but if you don't have this je ne sais quoi, if you don't have this extra thing that makes something, it spicy, something. right? So how do you define brand? Brand for me, it's that emotional layer that sits on top that kind of wraps everything that kind of encompasses or wraps everything up in a special. It's an additional layer of meaning. So of course you have to have a great product. You have to have a great product. Like you can't not have a great product. You can have a bad product, a rough brand around it, and it'll attract people to it. Like they're not going to hang out for lunch. Retention is going to be terrible. Churn is going to be high. When you have a great product, though, what happens is marketers tend to emphasize that functionality of the product as being the best thing about it. And that functionality is great. But then again, that functionality and that immediate result of that immediate value that it delivers. So then product functionality, the features, it enables someone to grow their business, increase their revenue. They manage to connect those dots, but they leave out that emotional journey. They leave out a layer because we're complex human beings. We have personalities. We have feelings. You know, there's a psychological principle of liking. We like things. We want, like to work with people that we like, brands that we like, that feel that fit into our personality. They're approaching brand from top down. So they're saying, we have a brand and our brand is awesome and you should worship our brand. And there's also, <laughs> it's also wrong. The best time is when brand, it aligns with those emotions and that personality that people already have within them. So it aligns with what your customer's experience is of your product, of your company. And that I think, and that is emphasized in the types of words that you use as well. So it's about getting back to that messaging. It's about what you say, not just how you say it. 
I'll give you a small example. I'm working with an AI company, with a data science company, international data science company at the moment. We're doing their core messaging, the strategic narrative, and their brand archetype is, for example, the magician. So a lot, I mean, you look at how, and you look at how a lot of AI companies or data science companies are positioning themselves, they're positioning themselves as the ruler. We're number one, we're the best, we're the smartest, we know exactly what we're doing. We're the expert, come and hire us to help you fix all your business problems because we know exactly what we're doing. They're taking a totally different approach. And the when I spoke with the CEO, this like it blew my mind away. He said, we don't see ourselves as the experts. We're not, we can't come to a CEO who's been with a company for 20 years and say, we know more than you do about your company. He said, that's, that's impossible. We're coming to help you take that power that you already have and make it better. So they've come in from a completely different place. And now the way that they're going to be communicating that is through by choosing specific words, phrasing specific metaphors and things that relate to this personality of the magician. We're enabling you have this power, this AI power, and we're enabling you to control and amplify that power. So it's completely, it's a complete different shift for coming where the experts you, we're helping you amplify your existing powers. It's a huge shift. First of all, it connects on a deep emotional level with their target audience, but at the same time, it's differentiating them. And differentiation in B2B, especially B2B software is just huge at the moment. We know what the, the map is like in terms of the competition. I would really love to dive deep into this process that feels like a black box, which is the turning something that looks plain and just uninviting to something that just moves you and you don't even know why? So the first step is, I think, is trying to understand, again, get in that mindset of the buyer. Now, everyone says, again, this is going to sound like another buzzword, but everyone says you need to get in the mindset of your buyer. But then they put themselves in the mindset of the buyer from an immediate needs. They don't look at the long-term. So first of all, they're not looking at that long-term need or that long-term transformation that their product or service is enabling them. Or at the same time, again, they're looking at the features and capabilities or the product functionality, and they're still not getting quite deep enough into what their target audience really desires. So I'll give you an example. If you're looking, if you are an international data science company, the target audience is CEOs, heads of departments in other enterprise level companies. They see themselves as the ruler. They see themselves as someone wielding power. These are huge, powerful Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. You can't come to them and say, I know better than you do. You're not going to be able to get into that. You're not going to be able to communicate with them on that way, on that level. That's not going to impress them. You come with a position. So for example, so when I say getting into their mindset, it's being able to relate to them on a deep level, say, look, we understand that you have this power. We're going to help you wield that power successfully so that you can continue exerting your influence and you can keep perpetuating yourself as this entity, as this Fortune 100 company that you really are. Now that's flipped the entire conversation over here. So when I say everyone talks about emotion, everyone talks about the buyer's mindset, that's why I'm talking getting really deep into their emotional motivators. For example, it's an ego play. Everyone wants to be the best. Everyone wants to be number one, which is fine, which is why a lot of B2B companies position themselves as we're rulers, we're experts, we're number one, we know exactly what we're doing. And that's fine, but that doesn't tell them, that doesn't relate to what actually people desire to do. So the CEO of a Fortune 500 company is thinking, how can I keep growing? How can I keep exerting our influence? How can we grow our sphere of influence? How can we expand? And so we're, by getting into their minds from that perspective, by coming at it with the emotion, again, using an archetype in that perspective just helps give a framework of a framework or a guidance because voice and tone and messaging can go really all over the place very very quickly 
We want to be friendly, down to earth, but at the same time, sophisticated and authority, you know, authoritative, not authoritarian. But then every B2B company again sounds exactly the same. So having an archetype, it's appealing to those deep inner emotions. So how did you figure that out for that particular client? It's a process of deep discovery, often with the core teams, often with the leadership team at a company. So we sat down deeply with the CEO in a very, very, very deep session, told him, what is your vision? What? How do you see the company? How do you see it fitting in to everything? And then taking that understanding and looking exactly what is happening in the market as well. Because when you're looking at everything related to messaging, positioning, and differentiating and that, you know, trying to settle on an archetype that fits, you want to look as well at what's happening in the market. So you want to see what everyone's doing and go in the other direction. For this company, they have some great products and some great services that deliver a lot of value, but they were struggling to differentiate themselves from any other startup that it's three data scientists and, uh, you know, sitting in their basement calling themselves an AI company that are charging half the price and can get something done in half the time. At the same time, being able to get into meet the CEOs or meet the decision makers in these other companies who are part of their target audience. So it's kind of this this triangle that's happening here. So it's the company internally, what the what the CEO is saying in their vision um, of the company. It's the same time what's happening in the market in terms of competitors. And then again, they're their customers trying to understand really deep level what they're actually looking for. I have a list of your needs versus rational needs and irrational needs that I use when I work with clients and, and try to figure out pretty much what you describe, which is like, what do they actually want? Because people are not going to tell you what they actually want. They might be able to voice some rational needs, but not all needs, especially as the one that the ego one is some would tell it, some wouldn't. So you have to guess it. You have to like really fill the gap. So just going to read out the irrational needs that I have. So reducing risk, improving purpose, improving self-love, increasing the sense of play, improving control and clarity, improving chances to fit in, improving chances to feel superior, improving chances to be seen and liked, decreasing number of choices and decisions and improving chances for companionship. Some people would describe that and say, you know, this is what we wanted to achieve with your solution. This is why we bought it. But very, very few would actually say it. And so, yeah, filling those gaps and understanding what's the status as well of that person. You know, do they feel on top and they want to remain on top? Do they feel at the bottom mm -hmm. of the food chain and like, you know, they feel little. And so those things I found are so difficult to explain out loud because there's a lot of like taste and experience that comes with it. But maybe you have some concrete lists or things that you use. You mentioned archetypes a few times. Maybe we can list them out. Basically, when I first stumbled across the idea of archetypes, it really spoke to me because it gives us, it gives a system of thinking. It's a framework of thinking. It's natural to want power. It's natural to want to be liked. It's natural to want to feel loved. The archetypes really spoke to me as giving, giving a framework for defining these meanings or how to, and then how to communicate these types of meanings. There was a great study, and I read, I got this from Talia Wolf's course a while back from Antonio Damasio. He did an experiment with, um, with some people who had had brain damage in the area of brain that was relating to emotion and why they could talk very logically about a great many things. They could, they struggled to make simple decisions like what type of sandwich they wanted to have for lunch. So even something like, so logically, you can, you can separate yourself. You can separate your brain and talk about something logically. But when it comes to actually making decision, it's still much very driven by our emotions. My background is with, I'm in anthropology and sociology. So when I came across the idea of archetypes, it really spoke to me and it really fit in because we all have systems of meaning for us. And the archetypes are basically, basically systems of meaning. A lot of companies use archetypes or they use brand in the wrong way. They come and establish it top down and say, we want to be positioned as X. Like we want people to see us as X. So 
And we want to be positioned as a cool, fun brand. We want to be like a jester brand or we want to be like a romance brand or we want to be like a ruler brand. So they come in and they try to enforce it from the top down. And then you'll see, for example, you'll see some examples of brand archetypes and people say, well, Apple is a creator brand. But when you actually look at on a deeper emotional level, Apple is really a rebel brand. It's all about bucking the status quo. It's all about breaking things, about breaking traditions, about, you know, moving forward and trying something to think different. It's not just like a creator archetype. It's actually a rebellious, like, see, you are stuck in, you are currently stuck in this place, but you need to think different. You need to break outside the box. You need to let go of rules and keep moving forward. And so make sure that the voice and tone, the words that you use, and then afterwards the visual identity all actually match and that they have some consistency between them. One of the worst things is that you have a brand that sounds really fun on their website and then their colors or their logos are really off. It really just gives that for underlying framework to make it pull right. everything together and make it cohesive. So let's dive into this then specifically. You mentioned three already, like the magician, the ruler, the rebel. How many do you have in your system? There are 12, there are 12 core archetypes. I have them in front of me, so I'm just going to read them out. Yeah. So the ruler, the creator, the sage, the innocent, the explorer, the rebel. The hero, the wizard, the jester, the everyman, the lover, and the caregiver. Within those 12, they split across the matrix. So you'll see three of them will relate to a yearning for paradise. So a deep under understanding, we're a deep alert, yearning for paradise, a learning for utopia, wanting to feel safe, free, explore the world. You'll have ones that are looking for, that are about providing structure. You'll have ones that are about leaving a mark on the world and the other ones that are related to a sense of belonging and feeling companionship together. So there are all different ways that you can group um, that you can group these. And of course, some, some brands actually combine two archetypes together sometimes in terms of their personality. The strongest way of using brand archetypes is when the archetype that you choose aligns with what the customer's experience is at the end of the day, what's the customer's transformation is. Right. Yeah, and like you see, so, Apple, the total rebel, you've got people who are, who are huge fans of the brand, they'll spend, stand for hours outside of an Apple store, you know, to get the latest version of anything that's available. So it's definitely, they've built a cult. Instead of cult following around their brand. I'll be honest, I have a pet peeve about Apple as an example for anything anymore because it's really, no one can relate to Apple. They are so big. They have so much cash in their bank. They are huge that, you know, small business owners, freelancers listening to this podcast and thinking they can do anything like Apple is just, it's absolutely crazy. No, so ab Absolutely not. You see a lot, to your, exactly to your point, a lot of people think, well, we can just do what Apple does because that's really cool. And Apple's, Apple's copy, Apple's branding, that works for them. Apple's, and if you actually look back, Apple has spent 40 plus years refining their advertise, their marketing strategy. They spent 40 years, you see all their first ads, all of them are long form, double two, three page print ads. It, all of it is about educating, because when Apple came out initially, it was, it was a competitor of Microsoft. They had to differentiate. They had to explain. Home computers still weren't yet a thing. They had to educate the audience. And now, now the, they had to educate the market first as into why people, why people needed computers at home and then why people needed an Apple computer. And so then it's taken 40 years and billions of dollars in marketing and ad spend to get this point where they can write two words and put a beautiful image of something and everyone will buy it. It's an outlier and it's not going to help us. So you said the intersection of like the company, the CEO, like what they, what, what they actually want out of the, the company, what the customers want, and then what the market, you know, where the market lies in the competitors. So about the customers, we've, there is plenty of episodes like that, like uncovering the job to be done, uncovering the unmet needs, making sure that, you know, you can innovate like 
really understanding why they, they, they want something. So we, we don't have to cover that. We had episode as well about like how to make sure that you understand stakeholders and what they actually want out of the company. What is their own goal? Like, treating them as your own customers almost. Because we talked about the, the 12 archetypes. How do you choose which one, right? Like what, what's the process there? We need to dig deeper. But you talked about competitors, competitive analysis, zagging when others are zigging and vice versa. So what's your process then to look at the landscape and figuring out there is something, there's an opportunity there? I go through and do a thorough SWOT analysis of top competitors. So I look at everything about the competitors. So what they're saying on their website, how they're saying it, how they're positioning themselves, looking at them usually on multiple across multiple channels and so not just on the website, how are they doing on social or how they're talking, you know, what their what's their writing style of their blog pieces, for example, all the way through to what kinds of images are they posting? What are the themes? What are the colors? What are those feelings that are coming out? What are they trying to communicate? A lot of the time you find that visually sometimes they look different because of the colors, but when you actually then look at the colors and then you look at what they're trying to say, a lot of it is just so much the same, which is a shame because then someone, so if someone is trying to make a decision between two different vendors or between two, if someone is a Fortune 500 company and they've, they've got an RFP out and they're trying to make a decision between two different vendors who they're going to work with for the next three to five years. It's it's really hard to tell the difference between who's going to bring you better value if you really just can't tell the difference between the companies that they're both saying exactly the same thing. So w- once you have that list, once you've done that sort for the main competitors, how do you analyze it? So I look back and I look at the word choices that they're using. Oh yeah, I'm coming at it from a communications, from a copywriting perspective. I'm looking at the word choices, things that the CEO has said. A lot of it is what's not said. So a lot of it is reading between the lines, but at the same time, you get hints of these things. You get hints at what they sit from, you know, from, from the transcripts of conversations that you have with the CEO. You can see it in the words that are being used by other companies, you know. So I'll give you an example. Like for this company, again, we talk about amplifying power or amplifying your AI power or unlock, unlocking opportunities for power. Everyone else is saying, improve your commercial, commercial side of your business, grow your revenue, increase your business. And we're flipping it and we're actually talking about you have a power and that you're able to control it. So it's looking, so it does take into consideration what the CEO is saying, but it's trying to read between the lines. And so there's hints that come through in terms of the types of words that they actually use. When the CEO said, I don't think we're, we know, we know a CEO's, another CEO's business better than they do. So that's a huge point of differentiation. When you sit back and you compare and you look at those words and those emotions that he's trying to communicate and you look at what those desires then again are in the market and what customers need and then you're able to find a sweet spot what it aligns with the most in terms of the archetypes. You said something very interesting which is something I'm a big fan of which is looking at the negative space. You say, you know, what's more important than what they say it's what they're not saying, right? What's more important than, than how they're saying it is how they're not saying it, right? I would encourage listeners to really dive in into that concept because it's mind-expanding. Uh, our brain is trained to look at what is there because that's how we see danger. And that's how, you know, we've been, you're an anthropologist, so you know that better than I do as a species. That's how we survive, right? We look at what is there. And so the absence of something is not something we tend to, our brain is trained on. But this is key if you want to stand out. This is key if you want to differentiate. This is key if you want to come up with good copy. That's what I was finding the struggle with, con- with a good straight conversion. Focus on conversion copy because conversion copy uses data and that data is is great. It's really important. It gives you the right direction. It's taking voice of the customer, it's taking actual things people say and copy pasting on the website. And it's hugely powerful. It's super persuasive because it's authentic. It's genuine. It really, really works. It's fantastic. It's a wonderful approach. But what happens between those lines? 
is just as important. No CEO in the world is going to admit that, you know, hiring a vendor is part of an ego play. No one is going to admit that. But what they do, it's what they need uh, at the end of the day, even if they can't even actually articulate that themselves. So it's about appealing to what's between exactly what's between the lines. In anthropology, for example, when you're conducting when you're conducting interviews as part of anthropology, you have to have the, the transcripts have to be verbatim. Every pause, every stutter, every stammer, you pay attention, you have to pay special attention to those because there's a point, there's something that happens and anthropology makes you pay attention to what's not being said as well as what is being said. So you're looking at, so if someone is communicating in a nervous way versus if they're communicating in a relaxed way versus if they're, there's pauses for emotion, it's like the dramatic pause and there's a pause in a transcript for, and you know that there's an intense emotion filled moment. What was happening in that moment? There was something going on that you can't just skip over it and say, well, it's, you know, it's white space and exactly as to your point. There's meaning in that white space and we have to get at what that meaning is. And that meaning is often the emotions that are so left out of that communication. Again, emotion is a fluffy word. I'm trying to get to those, those inner desires, those more inner motivations of what I'm talking about. That's fantastic insight. That's really, really good. And um, this is the beauty of connecting two things that have almost nothing to do with each other, meaning like anthropology and writing copy. Obviously, it is connected, but not that obviously, right? My point here, this is a tangent, but my point here is that a lot of folks are worried that by niching down, specializing or going into one area of focus, they're going to have their brain starting to shrink because they're only looking at one thing, right? But the key is not to think this way. The, the key is, yes, to focus, but using any subject topics and things that interest you outside and connecting things that have nothing to do with each other to create new stuff, right? Which is what creativity is about. So you, I envy you as someone who studies anthropology because, yeah, you can connect dots. You can really have insight that others don't. And that's the beauty of it. So that allows you to keep your brain active and, and to, to seek other stuff, but also to specialize very deep into one specific problem, but then you can solve it in a million different ways. So I just wanted to say that as an aside, because I know it's a big issue, big objection uh, uh, that people have. Okay, so we talked about the, the triangle that you described, like the company, the customer, the market. We talked about the sort analysis. Uh, what do they say? How do they say it? What channel are they using? And then the opposite, you know, what are they not saying, et cetera, et cetera. We talked about the 12 archetypes. Let's say we have all of this, okay? So now we have the architect that seems to connect the most with that situation, the desires, the inner desires of those people we seek to serve, what do we do next? Then we look at trying to create that core messaging as a result in line with that archetype so that even the messaging that the company has internally, so their internal messaging book or their, their core messaging that they have, that that's already in that right voice and tone that's communicating those right feelings and emotions so that they all have that core messaging as a result, and it's communicated in that right way, in that right format, with that right vision. So it's all really intertwined very early on from the beginning. Because again, a lot of companies seem to establish their strategic narrative or their why, their vision, their mission, all these kinds of things, and their value propositions based on what they imagine they want to do for the future, but they leave out that part of the customer and the customer. And that's why customers really don't care about a company's why. Because it's often so far removed from their reality. It's like, I really don't care that you're on a mission to save the world. How is that going to help me? So you really have to try and bring that customer's desires right into the core messaging early on. And that's why, you know, I didn't try to, I'm not trying to invent a new category or anything of it by, by saying conversion messaging, but it's like trying to bring the conversion elements of copywriting combined with that 
that in the emotions of core messaging from the beginning, because then it all helps trickle down again. Because you need to have a message that even even if you even if the CEO was just to say, well, we're on a mission to do ABC, a customer hears that's going to wow, I really like the sound of that. That sounds really cool, which does not happen ninety five percent of the time with the most B two B mission statements. Once we have the archetype, it's again. And to, to do that often creatively look at different brands in the industries that align with a specific archetype. So magician archetypes are like Disney, Tesla, Red Bull, things like that. So looking at how they sometimes communicate doesn't mean that the company is going to be like Disney or is going to, it doesn't mean that they have to do that. But what kind of feelings and emotions are these companies are similar magician companies invoking? And then as well, looking at different characters or celebrities that form the magician archetype as well. And then looking at how they talk and how they speak and what kinds of words that they use. So that helps give shape to that voice and tone and helps us pull out specific words and phrases that we can use to help invoke those emotions associated with the archetype and then infuse that already into the messaging. Because it's really powerful to have a strategic narrative that's already written with the specific voice and tone in mind. It gives it a huge flavor to it. It's really, it's really powerful. So there's a lot to unpack here. All very interesting stuff. Thank you. So I like to say that, yeah, people don't care about you, right? They care about one thing, which is themselves. And actually, there's a newsletter of mine going out today uh, about this very thing. I'm just going to read it out just as an example of what you said. So Mozilla Firefox ran ran an ad campaign a couple of years ago, and the ad was saying every browser does fast, but not every browser does good, right? They spend a lot of money on this, but yet the market share, their market share has, has been decreasing as mm-hmm. fast as ever, even with those ads, right? And the key thing here is that from Pep Leia, that was his uh, analysis of it. He said, the only browser with a purpose is dying because people don't care about purpose. So you mentioned then a very important concept, which is the strategic narrative, right? Which is, again, something that is being used and overused in the tech world. So let's try to define it. What is it? It's really, it's an articulation of what's happening in the world, how the company fits, what, what problems are currently existing in the world, how the company fits in the world to solve those problems, and then how the company is going to make the world a better place. It's not a company focused statement. I would say it's actually really how the company fits into the rest of the world. We have to see how we can fit into someone else's understanding of the world. And that's what a good strategic narrative actually does. It looks at what's happening in the world. And then it shows how you how you fit in to that picture of what's actually happening into the world in the world, and that's that's really powerful because then it has that context that customers actually care about. It shows how you're fitting into their world. You're not coming top down saying we are going to conquer your world. We are going to conquer the world. And we're going to conquer your world, in which everybody hates. But that's how, that's the nature of how most businesses run, right? We're coming out to we need to acquire customers. We need to strong arm our way into doing things. It's taking a step back. How do we fit in? There's a puzzle. Where does our piece fit in? Can you give us an example or maybe a template? I know you're probably going to say, you know, it's every one of them are going to be different based on the archetype or whatever, but maybe as guidelines, what does it look like? It's usually, it's just pretty much basically that, that transition, as I talked about, it talks about a good strategic narrative is broken down usually about three or four different parts. So, and it's usually very high level. It usually doesn't get down into product functionality because again that's really that's product messaging often corporate companies that have both they have both products and services they have multiple ranges multiple departments multiple things that they can do that's something else 
when we're looking, when you're looking specifically from a corporate perspective or even where the product is the company. So like a SaaS company, often the product is the company and you kind of, and the corporate brand, there isn't a separate corporate brand out of that. So usually it's, you're starting off with an understanding or analysis of what's actually happening in the world and what problems are exist in the world as a result of just the natural progression of history and time um, and the evolution of technology. And then how your company is fitting into that is positioned to help solve these problems and what it's, what it's enabled to do, that value that it's delivering. And then what is that, that promised land, that future? So as a result, so it's basically those three parts, the current world and the problems that it has, how your company is fitting into that to solve those problems and deliver value. And then what is that outcome or that final transformation? It's supposed to be very visionary because with AI, we don't know what's going to be tomorrow, less than five, you know, much less five years than now. So, but it's still meant to be what's that ideal outcome? What is ever, what are people able to continue on doing? So I find that, for example, a lot of conversion copy, it talks about the jobs to be done, but it's, it's only a small part of the puzzle. It's really how is the product? How is the company? How is their vision fitting into what else is happening in the world? I had Andy Raskin on the show before. He has a good framework. His concept is about what is the old game? What is the new mm-hmm. game? What are the reasons to act now? Uh, what's the ultimate goal of this game? What is the object of the game? What are the hurdles? And then how do you, does your product overcome those? But uh, this concept of old game versus new game is interesting because it's the current problems, as you mentioned, it goes one step beyond, which is the people are being forced almost to play this old game and they are desperately want to do something else, but they, they can't, right? And you're there to help them. Obviously, that's close enough to what you said, but it's another perspective. So I'm just going to read out the, the framework that I use. It's not as transformational. It's a bit more like down to earth. The first is to build a rapport. So as someone in the segment, what are they struggling with to get the job done, like to actually get to where they want to be? Then it's all about blaming someone else or something else, right? Where we say, you know, something like, well, I don't blame you. It's not your fault. It's the monster fault. And the monster is really the, the thing you're pointing the finger at that is responsible for your pain, but it's not you, right? It could be your brain tricking you, but it's not you on purpose. So it's like okay. really there to not, to avoid uh, making people feel guilty. And then the next step is introducing the brand saying, well, we wanted to do something about it, which is why we've created X. And then close it off by describing, unlike alternatives, we help you do X, Y, and Z that others are not doing. The thing that I have, and again, maybe this is why I I kind of shied away from it. I don't like to necessarily pin the blame on an enemy. So when I look at a strategic narrative, it's not so when you're looking, when you're getting down into sales decks, when you're getting down to sales presentations, yes, there are competing solutions. There is an enemy. There are things that exist in the world that people are forced to do in UA. But every technology thinks it's game changing, but a large amount of them aren't really because of the way tech has evolved to this point. Not everything is reinventing. Not everything is creating a new category. Not everything is breaking the mold. Personally, with the, with the clients or the projects that I've been working on, a lot of the time we are not breaking a mold, we're repositioning, we're positioning within an existing mold or positioning within an existing category or market or niching down or big session, a little pond kind of thing. So we're not breaking forward to new categories. So some of the times that I've been working with them, it's more about, well, there's actually shifts in general happening in the world on a wider scale. There's things happening in the world that are beyond anyone's control. It's not one specific enemy, but problems arise as a result of these shifts and natural changes. And it's not one company. It's not one form of anything, but there is stuff happening in the world. It's like the example I gave earlier, the way market awareness and understanding has shifted. You can't advertise a gym anymore by saying, we'll help you lose weight because you're going to get, <laughs> you're going to get roasted on social media for saying, 
for encouraging people to lose weight when it should be about body positivity and acceptance. But the monster is not like, hey, this is a big shift in the world. Unless you're all not there, you're going to die. It's really like, mm. okay. exactly as you said, the problems that they have, trying to summarize it under one roof so that you basically give people the illusion of choice between this or this, right? And you basically give them back control to say, you know, it's actually easy to understand this thing and it's right. not your fault. The monsters that I tend to identify that my students and my clients tend to identify are not grandiose stuff. They are just mm. sometimes very tiny stuff, but they enable you to really like summarize, I would say, the pain and problems under one roof. It simplifies the, the conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, that, And if that's the context, then absolutely, 100%. You need to, again, we need to simplify things rather than make them too complicated. So by housing it under one definition, and as you mentioned, a definition of a monster is in a problem, an issue that needs to be overcome, then absolutely. Last question. What are the top three resources you'd recommend listeners today? Probably the first one I would recommend is Copy Hackers because the value that they give away in their content is incredible, both their free content and their paid content. I myself learned from Copy Hackers, so I'm not being paid to say this. Um, but, you know, but I think extremely valuable to give anyone because like the frameworks that they give are very, are very much applicable for any marketer and they're very easy to grasp once you get, uh, once you get the hang of them. The Martech Weekly newsletter is also fantastic. Uh, Juan Mendoza writes that every week. It's, it's huge. You know, very deep thought essays on what's happening in the world of Martech. It's a really fascinating read. And something else I've been enjoying lately is the growth.design newsletter. So they have really interesting case studies about user onboarding or how consumer psychology was applied in different ways and pluses and minuses. And it's a fun educational journey along the way. So thank you so much for your time, for your insight. Very interesting conversation. I would have loved to debate more with you, but you can come back on the podcast to a later stage. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said your content attacks the mind primarily which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do but we don't have the courage to do it our way Mark who just subscribed a couple uh, days before said this is my first issue of your newsletter love it glad I subscribed Brianna said I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one came through the list two select all unread industry email except yours three delete and don't think twice four quickly scheme yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.